this is a recording made in the chapter of the open book and is number one, either number one C or number one three of the series entitled Saul, who also is called Paul. But why I have to make that peculiar announcement is that I crowded too much upon one card and one line in that card is going to be the text almost for the evening study. But I'm sure you'd rather have more than less, so there's no apology, I hope, needed. The line in the, uh, in the card is re- referring to the fact that the Apostle Paul, he was a persecutor, he was a zealot for the traditions of his fathers. It's a wonderful thing, salvation of an ordinary, everyday sinner. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, with no prejudice behind him, believing nothing. But the Apostle Paul was no ordinary, everyday sinner. He was a sinner the same as you and, and that I. But he got a tremendous prejudice to overcome as well. He was not only a Pharisee, he described himself as the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was not only a Hebrew, he was the Hebrew of the Hebrews. And his zeal went to not merely teaching and speaking, but persecuting. And that's the man that gives us an exhibition of what grace can do for that haughty, zealous persecutor became the humble preacher of grace to the poor, far-off Gentile. And it's good for us to remember that we come under the same wonderful regime. Let us just acquaint ourselves without spending too much time on the passages where this emphasis is given us in the connection with the Apostle Paul. We had read in, read in Philippians, he says in verse chapter, verse 6, chapter 3, concerning zeal persecuted the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now that was his own estimate and he was allowed to print it. Touching the righteousness in the law, he was blameless. And yet that man needed salvation just as much as you, or as much as I do. And we get the emphasis on the word zealot in Galatians chapter 1, if you'll just turn to that. Galatians chapter 1, verse um, 13 and 14. For ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion. So that was the environment the Jews' religion. How that beyond measure, it it didn't merely persecute, but beyond measure, I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. And that is a reference back to an Old Testament passage which speaks of the wild boar wasting the vineyard. That's how he described himself. And profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals. He's not boasting now, he's telling you in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous, and I think you could translate this more accurately, being more exceedingly a zealot. Of course, that means he was zealous. He was a zealot. For what? The traditions of my fathers. Acts 22, verse 4. I'm not staying on these because we've got plenty to deal with presently. Acts 22, verse 4. Here's his own statement. 
in his defense. Men, brethren, and fathers, hear ye my defense, which I make unto you this day. And when they heard him speak in the Hebrew tongue, they gave heed. Now I'll read verse 3 and 4. I am verily a man, which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city of Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God, as ye all are this day. And I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering unto prison both men and women. Well, now there's quite a number of these references. I just want to turn to one other passage. 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'm not going home after that, friends. This is because I want to get down to another aspect of the teaching which is waiting for us. 2 Timothy chapter 1. You remember that he said about Timothy in the third chapter that from a child he had known the Holy Scriptures. And in chapter 1 he refers to the upbringing of Timothy. Verse 5 when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois, and in thy mother Eunice, and I persuaded and in thee also. Now, notice he's emphasizing the upbringing of Timothy. Now, earlier in this very same epistle and chapter, he says, verse 3, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers. Now, that can be misunderstood. It could mean, in the ordinary English idiom, that right through from his forefathers he was serving God with an unbroken manner. But it means the other way round. I thank God, whom I serve, away from my forefathers, with a pure conscience. He's referring to the fact that Timothy had no need to repent and change. But he said, I had to. But I've got a good conscience over it because it was the work of grace. Well now I'm going to leave those passages and take another line this evening. Those of you who are listening to this recording will have received with the tape a a folder and uh, I think we must compliment our friends Rumsey and Porter for the way in which they put themselves out to make these witnesses that we give eloquent. Of course, I I did these things, I wrote these things, but they have reproduced them, and I hope we shall find them valuable. Now, first of all, if you'll open to the first page, you will have just a photograph of the page of a Hebrew manuscript. And the uh, point that I want you to notice is, not so much the text of the the scripture, but all those little bits in the margins. Look at the minute writing that is at the bottom of the page. And some of it's almost impossible to translate. Some of it is only sort of little marks. Well, this has to do with what is called the Masora. So if you will turn to the next page, you will see the word Masora on the top of the third page. Let's look at that first. The word Masora indicates delivering something to another for safe custody. And Rabbi Akiba called the Masora and their work offence to the scriptures. 
Now, what do we mean then by the Masorah and the Masoretic text? Well, the next two lines. No notes or comments are made. We say, what's all those marks in the margin? What's all that crowd of information? They just made a record of facts and features. And some of them, I understand, went blind in their dedication to this work. There is no one book in the world that contains all the Masoretic information. It's contained in nearly all the margins of all the manuscripts that are in existence. And they've never been completely collated. Now what did they do? Well, look at this instance. The Masoretes tabulated the number of occurrences of every letter. You think of that. Take the English Bible. Take the Old Testament only. Now you're going to sit down and start counting how many times the letter A comes in the whole of the Old Testament. Well, I'm afraid you wouldn't get through that, would you? Fancy every letter in the alphabet and they did it. I've given an instance here. The letter M, which you see is the Hebrew and then followed by the English letter M, occurs 77,778 times. Now, if you think it ought to be 77,777 times, well, you just start counting, friends, because they may have made a mistake, mightn't they? But I'm afraid we'll have to accept it. But you say, why? What's the purpose of this? Well, if you have every letter counted, you've got to just safeguard on that text that any alteration could be checked. That's what it's for. So let's thank God for those men who so scrupulously went through the text and put numbers against them. And they did other things. They were also very concerned about safeguarding the text. Um, Keep on to this page, first of all. You see two words, kri and ketib. Kri is that which you read. Ketib is that which is written. They never altered a text, but they gave an indication. They gave an indication that although they say these words, the other word was written. Now, that was a false reverence for the text. I'll give you an illustration of it, I hope, presently. A further illustration. Now, with regard to the Masoretes, then, and their, their slavish attention to the text, do you remember the anxiety that was expressed and the wonder that was expressed when they found those scrolls of the law near the Dead Sea? And then they had to patiently open them, carefully and gradually, and I know this, that if those scrolls of the law had in any measure contradicted the Bible, we'd have had thick headings in the newspaper. But it's not news, friends, to say the Bible's true. And all the patience in soaking those scrolls and gradually restoring them and reading them and comparing them, they proved that Isaiah was one prophet in spite of all that the critics said. And it's exactly the same text as we've got today. Now that's not very exciting news, is it? As the newspaper article says, if it says, dog bites a man, well that's not always good news, but if a man bites a dog, it is. 
If the Bible had been proved to be untrue, they would have splashed it through their papers. But the Bible turns out to be true, so that's not good news. It is to us though, isn't it? For these men, who devoted their lives to this slavish work, we must thank God that they did so, because it has preserved those ancient manuscripts that they're practically identical today as when they were first written. So we have this preservation of the text. Now, underneath that, I've got uh, two references, the Targums and the Talmud. The Targums, that's a name given to paraphrases in Aramaic. Or that again, you see, if you have a paraphrase written in another language, you can check the one against the other. So that's another way in which the text has been preserved for us. And Onkelos, a disciple of Hiro, who was the grandfather of Gamaliel, and Gamaliel was the teacher at whose feet Saul of Tarsus sat. So you see, Saul of Tarsus, the one who became Paul the Apostle, he sat at the feet of one whose very ancestry was devoted to the text of the Old Testament to prove it right to the very last. Now the word Talmud means doctrine and it embodied rules. And the Talmud consists of two parts. The Mishnah, that's the second law or the text, and the Gebra, which is a commentary. You see, now it's divided into two parts. First of all, we are given the true text. Then follows the commentary as to what it means. There are some who refer back to Nehemiah as one of the uh, instances of where this began to take shape. Will you turn back to Nehemiah chapter 8? Verse 8. Chapter 8, verse 8. First of all, you notice, I'll leave that, don't go a bit. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. That's verse 5. And then, these associates with him in verse 7. It says, they caused the people to understand the law. Verse 8. So they read in the book of the law of God, that's the original tongue. They read in the book of the law of God. Then the word distinctly indicates the Chaldee paraphrase, because these folks didn't speak Hebrew now. They'd been away, they'd been captives in a foreign country, so they first of all read in the book of the law, the original tongue. They had the Chaldee paraphrase distinctly, then they gave the sense, that is to say they gave an exposition and a division of the words. Because another thing meets you, that sometimes it's written straight away without a division. And you might chop it into different parts and make it read differently. So all this scrupulous care. And then they cause them to understand by referring to the points and the accents. Now when you say points and accents, there are no vowels in the actual alphabet. Which is like, how can a 
How could a language exist without vowels? Oh, they exist, all right, they're spoken. But they are not letters. And if you open the Hebrew Bible, you will see that they use dots and dashes look very much like Pittman's shorthand. So that when they want to express the O sound, it's just a dot in the middle of the letter. So all this has to be carefully weighed and preserved, and we thank God that it was done. So they read in the book of the law the original tongue. Distinctly, they gave it so that they could understand who spoke the other language. They gave the sense. They made it have a meaning. And they caused them to understand by going more minutely into the story. Well now, will you look at the preceding page? That is to say, it's keep it still open in front of you. But um, on that side we have further indications about this scrupulous care and the way in which they acted with regard to the scriptures. I've got on the top of this page, who is Shishak? Now look at Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 26. It says in verse 26, And all the kings of the north, far and near, one with another, and all the kingdoms of the world which are upon the face of the earth, and the king of Shishak shall drink after them. Now I won't attempt to go into the prophecy, but the question is, who is Shishak? Well, there are some who find a king they think might be the one, but there's a possibility that this is an example of what is called a very strange word. You see it halfway down, Athbash. Can you see that on the paper? A-T-H-B-A-S-H. Now, what's this all mean? Let me try to illustrate it this way. A is the first letter in the alphabet in English, and Z is the last letter. And B is the second letter in the alphabet, and XY is the second letter from the other end. Well, that's what they did. They didn't, they couldn't, they dare not. I don't know why, but they were still under the uh, possibility of oppression. They didn't say Babel. But if you take the words B-A-B-E-L and then write them from the other end of the alphabet, it's S-H-S-H-K. Shishak. Now you may say, would they do such things as that? Well, I wonder whether I can stop for a minute. I've got here a Passover service. I think you can see that it's got the Hebrew and it's got the English. But you say, well, what are you going to do with that? Well, I say, look, I'm going to read the uh, words of a song they sing at the Passover. I almost said I would try to sing it, but I don't think I'll afflict you with that. But I want you to imagine a solemn gathering of a Passover. Greybeard, old patriarch sitting there singing this song. An only kid, an only kid, the father bought the two zoos in, an only kid. And then he goes on to say, after saying that several times, there came a dog and bit the cat, which ate the kid which a father bought for two doozes he was in. 
And then there came a stick and hit the dog, which bit the cat. And it goes on. You say, that's like a nursery rhyme. Oh, yes, it goes on. There came a fire and burnt the stick. Don't you see? They're sitting at the Passover feast singing what sounds like a nursery rhyme. It ends up with uh, the whole thing. What is this? Pages of it. Oh, here's the whole thing then. I say the whole thing. Then came the angel of death and slew the slaughterer who killed the ox which drank the water which quenched the fire which burned the stick which bit the dog which bit the cat which oh hit the dog which bit the cat that ate the kid the father bought for two years Well you say what sense is there in that in a Passover service? Well just the same reason why they didn't say Babel and they said Shishak. When they were singing about the dog and the cat and the stick and the fire the angel of death, they were speaking of Egypt and Babylon and Greece and Rome that had been their persecutors. So while they were all quietly singing about this only kid and the stick and the cat, they were once more remembering the history of their people. You see the strange things that have happened in connection with this people and their literature. So I've, I've put at the top, you see, under this word, Chishak, the second letter from the end of the alphabet is SH, the second letter from the beginning is B. The eleventh letter is, from one end is CH, and the eleventh letter from the other end is L. And we get Babel in a cryptic form. Well now the next is this. In the middle of this page, you will see a line lifted out from the uh, Old Testament scriptures. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And underneath that, there is the actual photograph from the Hebrew Bible, which is in this chapel, where you can see that sentence is in the top line. And you notice that two of the letters are larger than the rest. Now, the reason for that is this that if you were a Hebrew and you knew your own language, every time you looked at that sentence, one word would stand out. And the one word is witness. The word ed, E-D, which is emphasised here, is the word witness. And every time that passage is looked at, I think it's in the book of Deuteronomy, every time it's looked at by the one who knew Hebrew would be a telling him, don't forget, you are witnesses that God is one. And of course, the more they had to emphasise, the greater difficulty they had to accept Christ, because he made himself equal with God. Do you understand? It was wrong of them, but this was one of the things that was a part of their upbringing from their childhood. So we have a little sympathy, although we can understand it was very wrong. Now our Saviour says, you remember, that... Um, not one jot or tittle shall pass. Now the jod in the Old Testament is pronounced jot in the New Testament. And the jot or the yod is the letter I. 
and the sign for the letter I is just that little uh, tiny mark which I've put there, uh, just a touch of the pen. That means I. Now the little decoration on it, it says, a rubric is written, there are seven Aleph's in the Pentateuch having seven Targim. Now, I don't profess to know just exactly what they mean, but what they have done, they have used this extraordinary mode of putting little decorations on a few outstanding occurrences of one of the particular letters, and that is preserving the text all the time. You can't, you can't rub it out, you can't alter it, it's there. And our Saviour himself who knew this, he said not one jot, that's the smallest letter, or tittle, that's the smallest piece of ornamentation, shall pass from the law without being fulfilled. On the other hand, he rebuked a slavish literality, which blinded their eyes to him. He said, our version says, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But equally true, that could be translated, you do search the scriptures. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they which testify of me, and you will not come to me that you might have life. So friends, all the slavish work done was only perhaps blinding their eyes to the fact that here in their midst was the very word of God in person and they denied him. So while we are thankful for the way in which they spent their time and energy in the preservation of the text, may God forbid that we should be so absorbed with concordances and lexicons and grammars as to leave the Son of God outside of our reckoning, for that would be indeed a tragedy. Now we turn the page, and there are what is called memory methods. I'd like you to know that there are no figures in the Hebrew. They've got no figure one, two, three, four. They use Aleph Beth Gimel Dolly, A, B, G, D, one, two, three, four. So it says here, in the beginning, that expression occurs three times at the commencement of the verse. I'm only picking this out as a sample of what they did. It occurs in Genesis 1 verse 1, in Jeremiah 26 1, and in Jeremiah 28 1. Now they want to have some way in which they can remember that. Well, they put down this. No, no chapters or verse numbers are used. Instead we find the memory sign. God establishes the righteous. A tortuous way, you may think. But then you see, we haven't got their mentality. We haven't got their limitations. We've got other facilities. So they put down God to remind them that it was Genesis 1. They put down established, because that comes in Jeremiah 26.1. And they put down righteous, because it comes in Jeremiah 28.1. And so these are called some of the emendations of the Sopharim. Sometimes the text is altered out of regard for the good name of God. They don't alter the text, but they call attention to another reading. That's what I said earlier. There was that which was written, but not read. And sometimes that which was 
read was that which is not written. So, in the uh, book of Job, it says, Job 1, 5, 11, and 2, 5, curse God and die. But they thought it's a horrible thing to put in any scripture. Curse God. So while the Hebrew cut out, as you see I've written it in English letters, can mean nothing else but curse. They altered it to the word to bless. But so that they should still see that they'd altered it, they used these other little signs. And commentators have strained credulity in attempting an explanation. Now there are other places where there are little changes. Psalm 106.20 Let's see what they did to that in their scrupulous care of the good name of God. 106 verse 20 They changed their glory into the similitude of an ox that eateth grass and forgot God. According to the original, it would be my glory. And the quotation in Romans 1 is they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God. But our version copying their alteration says they changed their glory, suggesting it was the man's glory. They were careful. I've got a note here. This is putting out your hand to stay the ark of God. You know what happened to the man who did that? We want to be very scrupulously careful about the word of God. But there's no need for us to alter anything. God can take care of his own witness and leave it pure as he's written it. Now these, on the next page, speaks of the 15 points of the sovereign. Sofarim, what's that mean? It means to count. And as far as we've got any information about them, they were formed in the days of Ezra. And I've already turned to Nehemiah where it speaks about reading the law, and there you'll find them counting the families that were uh, among them, and these Sofarim came into existence about that time. The work was completed by the men of the great synagogue right back here 410 to 300 years before Christ BC. Now here's an example of what they did. You see that line from Deuteronomy 29, verse 29? It's got a lot of dots on the top of it. To us and our children. Now really, the dots should go over unto the Lord our God. But out of respect, they are transferred so that it reads, the secret things, even the revealed things, belong to us and to our children. You may say, well, I don't see, oh, well, we're not there, so mind. But they were out to do something to preserve God from being involved in certain things, and so the alterations. Well, there's a very, next following, a very uh, interesting uh, example of this care to preserve the good name, even of Moses. Will you look at Judges 18, verse 30? 
Judges 18, verse 30. And the children of Dan set up a graven image, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests in the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. Now, strictly speaking, that isn't what it says in the original. It says this Gershom was the son of Moses. But you see, it was a horrible thought from these, their point of view that anybody should ever read in the Bible that one of the sons of Moses was involved in idolatry. So they put what they call a suspended letter. They don't write it straight in, but they put an N, a letter N, in the middle of the word, so that although you know it's Moses, you say Manasseh. Well, our translators simply adopted it and put Manasseh. But they were saving the good name of Moses. But of course, by so doing, they were altering the very word of God. Uh, At the the back of this uh, pamphlet is a reference to what we already are aware, that the Hebrew alphabet is also uh, numerical. Aleph, A, means one. Beth means two. Gimel means three. Doleth means four, and so on, right through the alphabet. And there are many wonderful things that you could discover, as I dare say you know. I've put there... Uh, the seven words that come in uh, Genesis 1 in the beginning created that comes first God God created Um, there's an indefinite article which is not translatable so far as our grammar is concerned the heavens and the earth now they've got numerical values uh, Beroshith, that's the first word, adds up to 913. Bara, which is the word for created, adds up to 203. And so on. And so we have an evidence, even of this wonder. Look at the, the outstanding words. God, the heavens, the earth. God, equals 86 the heavens equals 395 the earth 296 now we're very bad at arithmetic but I really think I've added it up properly 777 the outstanding letters and words of that original opening of the Bible and it, it goes more than that it has many other features I just pass on I notice that there are 28 letters used in that sentence, which is the multiple of seven. But there are also other wonders with regard to number in Scripture. In the Greek New Testament, Jesus adds up to 888. Now you say, well, what's so significant about that? Well, the Antichrist, the false Jesus, adds up to 666. You're told so in the book of the Revelation. 
This beast who is coming, the anti-Christian monster, he will be branded with a threefold number six. Now six is one short of seven, the perfection. And eight is the octave number, even on the organ or singing, the octave starts all over again. A fresh start, a new creation. And so Christ our Saviour has the eight number, 888. The Antichrist, 666. Well, I felt that I must at least spend one of these evenings on this aspect. I don't think I'm very good at it. I don't know much about it. I ferreted out a little bit for your benefit and I hope that if you're interested you will realise that we owe much to this indefatigable calculating, transcribing, counting, measuring and in any possible way they could think of of preserving the text so that now these centuries after they were written we can be practically certain that we're reading the very word that God gave when he gave Moses or Isaiah or the Psalms those wonderful Old Testament passages. And if he took such care over those promises which were written beforehand, are we to think that he neglected to preserve the fulfilment of them? Will we come to realise the New Testament also has come down for nearly 2,000 years and we have in the Greek the equivalent of the fulfilment of all these precious passages, I think we can rest assured in spite of all that men may do or say, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and he is well able to watch over his word and preserve it and will fulfill it right to the very end. Now I don't say that those of you who have listened to me are going to follow this out and if you're not very keenly interested, you'll forgive me for occupying the time. But I did feel, having got so far, I ought to add it to the number, and therefore I leave it to do its own work.